Like the anniversary is is, is Valentine's Day. I don't think I've ever celebrated Never. Valentine's After Day that. since that. Because Valentine's Day means nothing to me. Nothing. Only 48 people yeah. died. It's the startest anniversary to me. It's not Valentine's Day. Everybody else will be buying roses and shit and all that. Even though I was got married and all that, and I used to say to him, don't give me, don't give me flowers, don't give me anything on Valentine's Day to me, I don't do Valentine's Day. It's to say my birthday is in that month, I just couldn't be arsed with it. Do you know what I mean? And you always get edgy, like, coming towards, coming towards it. In around the end of January, I always feel my mood changing. You know, and I, I remember, like, I go to counselling now, right, and I, and I talk about it. And I always remember saying to the counsellor, why does that happen? And he said, well, you tell me why. And I know now why it is, because it's coming near the anniversary and every all the thoughts that are coming back up in your head. You know, so you're kind of... I mean, I'm lucky enough now I'm getting counselling myself, but like all the people that didn't get it, you know, and that we didn't get it for years. It's now almost four decades since the Stardust fire in Artane in North Dublin. It has appeared in the news again and again since then. But it's been a story without an ending. Every few years, you might have heard about a new development, new calls for inquiries, new protests, new ways for the families and survivors to ask for closure. The momentum of the campaign wasn't constant. Over the years, it would ebb and flow. It might seem to gain pace after a new protest or when a politician raised it in the doll, but this would often fade quickly. Stardust became a byword for tragedy, but also for a kind of stalemate. The families drew hope in recent times from seeing other activists make progress after years and years of campaigning. A new inquest was ordered for the Hillsborough tragedy in 2012. This was more than two decades after 96 Liverpool fans died at a football stadium in Sheffield. More recently, they've seen the families of victims of the Grenfell Tower fire in London start their own fight for their loved ones, with a state inquiry opening in 2017 into the deaths of the 72 people who died. It gave them some hope, but at the same time, the Stardust families have seen it all before. They made barely any progress for so long. This all changed on the 25th of September 2019. At last, the families finally got somewhere. Okay, we will get started and I suppose just to say first of all I apologise for the size of the room but it was very short notice given that we only found out um, from the Attorney General yesterday and we were trying to find uh, a suitable location to have a press conference, so we really do apologise. We know it's a very small room, but there was nothing really we could do about it. Do you mind introducing yourself? Please? Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm Lynn Boylan, um, this is Antoinette Keegan, Dara Mackin, who's the legal representative for the families, and Eugene Kelly. Um, as I said, there's too many people to thank, but you know who you are, and it wouldn't have been possible without the help of all of those people working together and showing that when you actually unite around a cause, you can achieve great things. So I'm going to hand you over, first of all, to Dara Mackin, I suppose, to, to discuss the legal implications of, of the Attorney General's decision yesterday. Thank you, Ian. <clears throat> a fresh inquest will now commence in full of the Attorney General's recommendation into those events. That inquest will call evidence 
hear from witnesses, hear from fresh uh, expert evidence as to how the fire started, what the circumstances of the fire were and establishing the truth of what happened that night. Today is a very, very important day. It's a momentous day for these families in their quest for justice. Attorney General Seamus Wolfe ordered new inquests into the deaths of the 48 people who died at the Stardust. He said that it was in the public interest and in the interests of justice. He said that in the original inquests after the fire, there was an insufficiency of inquiry as to how the deaths occurred. In other words, he said it was a failure to fully consider the circumstances of the cause of the fire. An inquest is an official public inquiry that is held to establish the facts of a person's death, such as where and how the death occurred. Inquests are overseen by a coroner. In some cases, a jury is required. Inquests have very clear rules. They're held to establish the facts surrounding a death and to place these facts on public record. They do not decide whose fault it was or whether there was a criminal offence. They do return a verdict about how the death occurred. The range of options open to a coroner or jury include accidental death, misadventure, suicide, open verdict, natural causes, or unlawful killing. Over the years, there have been many suggestions as to what could have caused the fire. Now that an inquest has been called, we won't make any suggestions on what caused the fire. Preempting what the findings might be, going into detail about the new evidence, or predicting what rulings might be made, would run the risk of interfering with the sensitive inquest process. The integrity of the inquest proceedings must now be protected to allow it to proceed fairly. It's been a very long road to get this far. We've had that many letdowns before. In the 38 years of the journey of justice, we have campaigned, like my father set up the Stardust Victims Committee in 1985, and he fought till his deathbed for justice for the living and the dead. I think today is a victory for the dead, the 48 that perished. They have helped us, they have been guided, they have walked every step that we walked. They've helped us to get where we are today. And we will keep fighting for the 48. They deserve justice, they deserve truth. That's all I can say. Thank you very much. For journalists like Charlie Board and Eamon Dunphy, who covered the story at the very start, it felt like Ireland had simply just moved on and forgotten about the stardust. Of course they forget about it. Of course they have. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yes, they have. By and large, yes, they have. You see, the people who are grieving don't stop grieving. And the absence of closure uh, and the stain on the community remaining, that it could just have been arson. All of that keeps the wound open and it's a daily torment. And, you know, to lose loved ones in circumstances like that is in itself a, a tragedy beyond our comprehension who haven't experienced it. Oh, no, I know some ministers, some people, politicians have taken up the, you know, the challenge and helped. But I'm talking about the, the body politic in Ireland, basically, in my view, has left the stardust relative stand. 
And when I talk about the political system, I mean collectively. I'm not talking about a government or one person. I'm talking the whole system. And, you know, it's what I call Ireland Incorporated. Ireland Incorporated, really, they just want this to go away because they feel guilty and that they really didn't do enough about it and that they just want it to go away. But it won't. It won't go away. And it hasn't gone away because of the actions of a core group of survivors and the families of victims. And it's worth bearing in mind, everyone affected by this tragedy has lived with the aftermath in their own way. There's no right way to deal with it. Some have campaigned non-stop. Some are more active in it at certain times than others. Some close that chapter of their lives. Losing someone in the Stardust disaster or being there that night was such a traumatic experience to endure that to relive that for decades isn't an easy thing to do. But for some, they felt they had to continue. After the Compensation Tribunal in the mid-1980s, the story goes dark for a number of years. At a time when people were still suffering in many ways, there were only fleeting mentions in the media. One was the opening of the Stardust Memorial Park in September 1993. Charles Hockey had torn the first sod on the park, calling it the final act of reparation. Singer-songwriter Christy Moore performed at its opening, playing his song, They Never Came Home, written in honour of the Stardust victims. This song, released in the summer of 1985, was banned for a period, as the lyrics were found to be in contempt of court. It was originally included on his album Ordinary Man, and the album was already number one in the chart when the court found the song to be in contempt. The album had to be re-released with a different song in its place. It has since become an anthem for the campaigners. Moore wrote in his book, Years later, I was asked again by the families to officially open the Garden of Remembrance in Bonnybrook. On the day, there was a great jostling for profile from various public dignitaries. When I got on the rostrum, I was so emotional I could barely speak, so I simply sang the song quietly and declared the park open. The opening of the park wasn't a comfort for many. Catherine and Susan Darling and Paula O'Brien remember how the effects of what had happened that night lingered for a long time. But you know what you don't understand either? I mean, there's two or three of our friends became alcoholics after that status. More than that. Do you know, well, just I'm just thinking of three at the moment. Don't have any names. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, like, when you look at that, that they became alcoholics after that, and some and some girls as well. And when you look at that, and three of our friends that were there that night have died since. One was born, the other fellow was born, and they have died since. So, like, they had kind of no really life after that because they didn't know how to handle what had happened to them. As you say, the end, you that know? was all down to no counselling no or anything no like counts, that. No, nothing, you know. Just and go like, home and forget about and, it. And people, like, forget about that. And governments don't hear that part of it. Like, what happened? What happened in the aftermath of it? What happened to the people's lives after? You know. Oh, forget, was there 100 people there that night? Momentum started to build again in the 2000s. The families began to revive their activism. Public meetings were held and people who'd been out of touch or out of the country for years began to reach out. Eugene Kelly, who'd lost his brother Robert in the fire, 
got involved when he returned home from years in London. So I did come home, and at, at that stage, Sean, I wasn't even thinking of coming home. But when I came home, then all of a sudden, somebody got down to me and said, uh, there's a big meeting up in the school in Kewlock. Mrs Keegan heard you were home. She wants to know, well, she wants as many people up there to go up there to a meeting for the, uh, about the status, about going on a journey, getting justice. So I went up, and then the rest is history. I was asked to come on board with the Status Victims Committee, and I've been with them ever since, you know. The media also began to pay attention again. An RTE primetime documentary, and the book They Never Came Home, by journalists Neil Featherstonaw and Tony McCullough, highlighted the concerns with the official version of events that culminated in the probable arson verdict. The campaign stepped up a gear in 2006, when families protested for 10 weeks outside the former site of the Stardust. Patrick Butterley passed away in 2000, but his sons Eamon and Colm, who owned the Butterley Business Park at the site of the Stardust, moved to reopen the original Silver Swan pub. This was due to happen on Valentine's Day, 2006, the 25th anniversary of the fire. Protesters were at the site every evening for weeks on end, playing They Never Came Home non-stop outside the pub. The families agreed to stop the protest when the Butterleys assured them the name of the pub would be changed to the Artane House and a memorial would be put up. The following year, there was a major development. The bodies of the five men, buried together in a mass grave in 1981, were exhumed. Modern DNA techniques paved the way for them to finally be positively identified. At the same time, Antoinette took the fight to the government to try get a new inquiry into the fire with new evidence the families had sourced themselves. But in, in 2000, right, my mother kept saying, I want, I want to get this sorted out. I want, I want to find out why my two daughters aren't here. And I just said, I'll just leave. I said, because at the end of the day, I said, look at me dad, he died over it. And she goes, oh, I'll never give up. I'll never give up. So I said, right, okay, I'll help you. Rather than I do it on her own, so I helped her. And we start getting meetings again with the Department of Justice, giving them reports and telling them, like, you know, this is here and this is new evidence. And every time we went to a meeting with the Department of Justice, there's no new evidence, just a inter- different interpretation. We had it from Alan Shatter, we had it from uh, Michael McDowell, we had it from every what Minister of Justice that was in power that since we came on board in 2002. And, that and basically, that's like we said, we're not, not going to give up, right? We're going to keep going. So in 2006, there was a submission given to Bertie Ahern and we had a meeting and it was called Nothing But The Truth. He had to change his mind and give us something. So that's when he decided to give us a review, an independent review from Paul Coffey. Paul Coffey is now a High Court judge. He was a senior counsel at the time with two decades experience. He was tasked with looking at if there was enough evidence for a new inquiry. It was a big break for the families, but it didn't achieve what they hoped it would. Coffey began his work in July 2008. He examined the original tribunal report, met with the Stardust Victims Committee and other relevant parties, but was instructed not to initiate any further investigations into the cause of the fire. He published his report in January 2009. Coffey said the new evidence put forward by the families wasn't enough to warrant a new inquiry. Arising from the foregoing, I am satisfied that the committee has not identified new or any evidence capable of establishing the cause of the fire 
wheresoever it arose. However, he took issue with the finding of probable arson. Coffey said that, given the fact that the tribunal itself declared that the cause of the fire wasn't known and may never be known, its final verdict was problematic. He said, quote, The conclusion is inescapable. Whatever else may sustain it, the finding is not demonstrated by any evidence that the fire was started deliberately. The tribunal's finding of fact that the fire was probably started deliberately is, on its face, a mere hypothetical explanation for the probable cause of the fire and is not demonstrated by any evidence that the fire was started deliberately. It seems to me that as the tribunal was established by the Oireachtas, the government should consider whether it can correct the public record by placing on the record of the Dáil and Shannet an acknowledgement of the tribunal's findings that there is no evidence that the fire was started deliberately and that the cause of the fire is unknown. Vindication. At long last, 28 years after the fire, it was recommended that the finding of probable arson should be removed from the public record. There was no evidence to suggest an arsonist was responsible, and now the state would acknowledge it. Indeed, in the 1981 tribunal report, Judge Keane accepted that there was no actual evidence that the fire was started deliberately. His conclusion then was based on a hypothesis developed from eyewitness accounts and subsequent forensic tests. On tour de February 2009, Minister for Justice Dermot Hearn stood up in the doll and laid that particular ghost to rest. I'm now moving to a motion re the uh, Stardust Tragedy, Tarashkint Mother, Let's Avoid, Boytown Stardust. I call on the Minister for Justice, Equality and Law Reform, Deputy Dermot Hearn, to move the motion. Kankona, I, I move that uh, motion. The government wishes to acknowledge that, as a matter of fact, the actual cause of the catastrophic fire at the Stardust on the 14th of of February 1981 is unknown. None of the victims of the Stardust disaster or the persons present at the Stardust on the night of the fire can be held responsible for the fire. We simply cannot say how the fire was caused and no one who was present on the night can be held responsible for its cause. But, crucially, Coffey's report didn't recommend a new inquiry. Probable arson was removed from the public record, but still left the families no closer to the answers they sought. They'd hit a brick wall again, but it didn't deter them. Hundreds turned up to the vigils at the site in Artain every year. The victims' committee continued their protests outside the doll. They wouldn't stop the calls for a new inquiry. Fresh hope came after the 2016 general election. Fine Gael formed a minority government with the support of the Independent Alliance. One of the conditions sought by North Dublin TD Finian McGrath, who is part of the Alliance, was that the government must commit to look into the Stardust fire again. Enda Kenny, Taoiseach at the time, agreed. Pat McCartan, a retired judge, was tasked with compiling a report into the new and updated evidence put forward by the families into the cause of the Stardust fire. He assessed what was provided by the Victims Committee and their researchers, but he was critical of what it contained. In general, the dossier was very badly structured and difficult to read. It was not clear what the new evidence was. The dossier was rambling, argumentative, disorganised and at times incoherent. Having considered all the material submitted by the committee, there is no new or updated evidence disclosed in the meaning of the terms of this assessment, and no new inquiry is warranted. 
the families were gutted. Their efforts to get a new inquiry for over a decade had failed. This was a new low. Something needed to change. And for me, I think that's where Dara Mackin was such a sea change because it was his idea that don't be calling for new inquiries because inquiries are always constrained by the terms of reference. What you need to do, first of all, is establish the facts of what happened that night. And that's where the inquest comes in. And that's what worked for Hillsborough as well, is that you get an inquest, you establish the facts. And from that evidence, it then sort of levers open the door for an inquiry with the proper terms of reference. Lynn Boylan was elected as a member of the European Parliament for Sinn Féin in 2014. After the findings of McCartan, she began working with the Stardust families, alongside Dara Mackin, a Belfast-based solicitor from Phoenix Law. Alongside legal efforts to secure new inquests into the debts, Lynn formulated a plan to put the Stardust back into the minds of the public. While Dara Mackin focused on the legal work, she met with families to plan a revived campaign under the banner of the word Truth. They also needed a way for people to get involved. This eventually took the form of the simple act of delivering postcards to government, demanding action. Because one of the things I think with the Stardust is, and it certainly came out with the campaign, is that the public want to help and they want to help, but they don't know how. Because, you know, how do you get involved with an inquiry or a tribunal? That idea of just the postcards and travelling around the country and people just signing their name, that was something tangible that they felt that they could do. And in in fact, when we started those postcard stalls, one man even drove from Kildare to Ballyfermas because he'd heard it on the radio that morning that we were going to be there. Um, And it was just overwhelming, the support. We got two and a half thousand printed and uh, gave them to the families, we sort of distributed them and said, OK, you know, we'll work away in getting these. And within, I think, two days, they were ringing going, yeah, we need more postcards. So we were like, well, we'd go for 5,000. And then I just had this kind of thought, what if we got 48,000 signatures, 1,000 for each of the victims? And sort of we went ahead, got the postcards printed. And yeah, we could have gotten 100,000 signatures. I mean, the, we just had to kind of draw the line and sort of say it's a symbolic Uh, handing in a 48,000 signatures, which was a really powerful statement. In November 2018, the families delivered the signatures to the Attorney General. In April 2019, they put in their legal submission for new inquests. This highlighted new evidence the families have obtained regarding that night, as well as emphasising the strong public interest in getting to the bottom of this once and for all. After several delays, the families were told they'd be given the Attorney General's decision on the 25th of September, 2019. They tried not to get their hopes up. They'd been here before. At an emotional press conference the following day, Antoinette Keegan and Eugene Kelly gave their reaction to the decision to order fresh inquests. This has gone on for so long, and this is where we said we will not give up, never give up, until we get truth and justice for our loved ones. Well, we maybe walk from a walking class area, but we have, have we got strength? You just, we have drive. We were going our way until we got the justice. Well said, Eugene. Over the years, the families have been, unfortunately, spectators in their fight for justice. But today, they enter the ring in their own fight. And from this day onwards, they will now be in control of their fight for justice and their fight for the truth. It should not take this long to get to the truth of what happened. This is Ireland's greatest atrocity. It can never be accepted, and it isn't acceptable, that the events of that night 
go unanswered and unaddressed. The Minister for Justice has said the process of inquests will be expedited and it's now expected to get underway in 2020. One of the, the concerns is just the resources have to be made available to the families and one you have to have I suppose a, a court set up we don't think the coroner's court will be sufficient for something so big this will be the biggest inquest that the state has ever had so you'll need a, a location we, we believe it should be on the north side of the city to make it as easy as possible for the, the families to attend every day if, if that's what they, they choose to do. Also just in terms of the legal representation for the family. So all of that has to be teased out. But we presume that in the in the new year, very early on in the new year, you'll have the process of sort of disclosure of all of those documents that are there. And then hopefully, uh, I suppose by the by the summer of next year, that the inquest will be up and running. And one of the, the arguments that will be made to the, the coroner's court is, okay, we know there's a huge backlog. Uh, we know they're under pressure, but that given that the families have waited so long for this to actually happen, that it should be um, expedited. It's almost 39 years since the Stardust fire. The people there that night, the families of the deceased, their lives were never quite the same afterwards. They had to carry on if they'd never really moved on. Maybe it's not possible to move on from something like this. Many people who are there that night just don't want to talk about the stardust. They felt as though they had to move on because they had the chance to. People who escaped unscathed have described themselves as the lucky ones. Dr Yolanda Ferguson says that even these people can run into their own health problems. If you are, if you feel very much in part of a community, you know, you have a very solid so- social foundation, you are less likely to suffer the sequelae. Um, and then afterwards, if you feel very much part of us, at the same kind of social milieu, you again are less likely to develop the, uh, the the psychological sequelae. Of course, there are many other variables as well. But I mean, the, the other aspect of it is what increases your risk of developing mental illness or, or, more, uh, or more severe psychological sequelae would be that sense of what's called survivor guilt. So in fact, aren't you lucky you made it out? is very often internalised, I feel guilty that I survived and others didn't. And that increases your risk uh, in itself. Um, or, and that's often a feature of the, of the ruminations people have in, in the aftermath as well. The Stardust fire stayed with people. It was a permanent presence in their lives. Lorraine MacDonald's house was never the same after her sister Teresa went out and never came home. It was like an earthquake going through your home. But the earthquake is still there. It hasn't gone away. There's so much of the future taken away. There's so much of the future. And, you know, it's... Poor dreams. My dreams, they kind of really go... I mean, yeah, it is... There's an empty hole in my heart that I think would be there to day day. You know, it just... If I had... You know, and as I say, it was an earthquake. That didn't go away. That hasn't gone away yet. I don't know if we ever get closure, but I'd like to have closure. Back in Derry, Yvonne Graham and her friends rarely talk about the fire that claimed the life of Susie Morgan. 
we still, still to this day, no matter where I go one day, I look for a fire escape. And I know Fanola does the same thing. Our cruise and Anne doesn't talk about it at all. Me and Fanola talked about it more because we went up and met by Antoinette and Emmons when they come up here. And then I was, as Antoinette was trying to get in contact, you see, with Susie's family. My sister ended up marrying Susie's brother. They still don't really talk about it. Our Christine and Anne still don't talk about the fire. As I say, it took me and Fanula a long, long time to talk about it. But as I say, we still look for exit doors. Do you see after it? Do you see, there's, there's a big bar down the street from us, St. Hala House, you call it Dooley's now. And I, I remember me and Fanula being in it. And I can't remember whether our Christine and Anne was on it that particular night, but it would have been maybe, I would say, maybe six months after the Stardust. And I remember all the lights going out, but I got up and I ran out, like, uh, you know, because I, I just thought once a light without a tit. Morris Fraser has never forgotten what happened to his sister Thelma. Uh, my dad, uh, a friend of his, did a, a portrait of, of Thelma, so we have Thelma up on the wall, you know, still. She's always looking down this, but yeah, every day, I mean, there's not a day like... I, I remember I was, I was working uh, one in one morning and uh, there was a, a fire in, on the south side of Dublin. There was a, a fireman. I worked in the x-ray department at the time. A fireman there, and you could just smell, you know, he was in the fire, you could smell the burning, the burning off him, and he was inconsolable. You know, that, that hit me, you know. That, you know, not only the families were, were affected, you had the guards, you had all the rescuers. You know, and and today, like I mean, I still like uh, there's, there's a guard. Uh, I'm in contact with an ex-guard, a retired guard now. Uh, he was on the night duty uh, on the duty that night, and he was a motorcyclist uh, guard. And basically, he said he cycled around Dublin, bringing uh, families, bringing uh, bodies to the morgue, bringing uh, you know, you know. He said he's, he's he did a 16-hour shift without any tea break or anything like that. He said it really affected him. And, you know, just to see that, uh, God knows what the firemen went through, you know. Uh, heroes, it's, it's not a word that can describe, you know, what they went through that night. Retired firefighter Dave Fitzgerald says it's always something that's stuck in the minds of him and his colleagues. Only about five years ago, um, we were down in... Uh, where we would go gathering from, from a couple of stations around in Alpha District, which would be Donnybrook and some of Tar- so, uh, from all over really, um, but mostly Alpha District. We go down to Lynham's of Lara down down in Wicklow. We go for our Christmas do's down there. And I can remember maybe about five or six years ago, one of the guys that was there, a good friend of mine, great fireman, and I remember one of the lads start playing the song. You speak, I, I, to be honest now, I have to say, I, I didn't really listen to it before in, in detail but we were all down there maybe three in the morning I remember this guy uh, he started playing the Christy Moore song the start of the song and I can remember this guy absolutely in floods of tears and then I remember he went outside and I went out after him and he just said I couldn't I'm sorry but I said that's it's great and he said do you know what this is and this is factual he said do you know what he says I actually I actually feel relief now and I feel it's over and I feel I needed that and I didn't know it was just always inside me. For Errol Buckley, the trauma of losing his brother Jimmy never went away. 
he would eventually move abroad for a number of years before returning. He still kept up the disco dancing. I think it was the country club we used to be having. I think it was Saturdays. And they done, done another spot like that, of what the star has done. And there was a lot of competitions there. I was in, I was in a good few of those, uh, competitions out there. I think it was Cam Toward and one of them or something out there. But it was really... Uh, dancing was all the go then, you know. People really let themselves go. And I think there's, you, could, you could go to Europe if you won some of them, you know what I mean? Uh, I miss them terrible. I miss them terrible. I just went over to uh, I went over to London, and then I just got a job from there. And then after a year, then <clears throat> a lot of lads went over to America, was, and we went to America. Then I stayed for about ten years. I had to get away. I just I didn't want to be in Tony Carney or you know. I just I just didn't want to be there, like you know. So it just wasn't the same. Linda Bishop has suffered lung problems, requiring surgery over the years. It's only recently that doctors have identified that the problems she faces now are linked to being in the club that night all those years ago. And he said, right, what it looked like and what it looks like is lung cancer. He said, but when they went in and had a, you know, a proper look, they realised it's not lung cancer. He said, but your lungs and bits. Um, and I said, well, again, I was in the Stardust years ago and I said, and I know I was told, I've been told that's irrelevant. And he said, what? Who told you that? And I said, well, the last guy I saw, so he had that information in front of him. And he said, sure, he wasn't even born then. And I said, well, that may be, you know, the relevance. But uh, he said, of course it's relevant. Of course it is, he said. So, you know, the surgeon then, I asked her, like, what was the story? What She just said, it was, I won't say exactly what she said, but she just said, it was a mess. It was just, and it was lots of carbon. Like, so it was black, which she took out. Oh yeah, but there was hundreds of us there, do you know what I mean? There was hundreds there that night. And I know there's loads of people, there has to be. I wasn't in the hall on my own. Uh, I wasn't the only one that got out. And you would imagine, like, you're breathing this stuff in and it's hurting. You can feel it born all the way down. You'd kind of hold your, no, it's, your brain makes you gasp even harder and breathe deeper to try and get air. But, um, so I know definitely, I definitely am not on my own there. Definitely not. Selena McDermott was very young when her siblings died. But still, every day, little things remind her of George, Willie and Marcella. Uh, with Marcella, I suppose it'd be music. Like I said, I went, I seen Terry Hall in the specials there a few weeks ago. And I mean, as soon as he came on stage, started singing, I was singing to Marcella. I would play a lot of horror music now and still listen to it. And it brings me back to Marcella. George, I suppose George would be um, even like, you know, if, if there's a bit of racing on the telly or something like that, he'd, he loved the horses or joking. He was always joking and messing, a real messer. When I see that and say in my son or my mother's other grandchildren, you see that real messing thing going on. That's real George, you know what I mean? And then Willie was just a real sort of protector, real big fella protector and used to be all right sort of thing, you know. So that that sort of, yeah. I often wonder, like, what they'd be like now, you know. Yeah, it's sad, you know. If, if they'd kids and married or where would they be living? And, like, how different our lives would have been. Their lives would have been so much different. Imagine if Stardust happened today. 
It's actually really hard to imagine dozens of young people, mostly from the same tight-knit community, killed in such a horrific, awful tragedy. But since then, attitudes have changed. Fire safety has come on a lot. The fire service here may still be under-resourced in some ways, but the disaster did change things. Their equipment and training got better. New laws were introduced to keep building standards up. We have heard of developers not meeting these standards, but we haven't had loss of life on such a scale again in this way in Ireland. There were lessons learned back in 1981 that would still be wise to heed today. The changed laws must be adhered to, and the new awareness of fire safety gained in the wake of the fire must be respected, or we risk a tragedy like the Stardust happening again. Ireland has changed so much in the past four decades, but some things remain the same. Most weekends, you probably head out to the pub to have a few drinks with your friends. The night might drag on, and you end up with hundreds of others in a club. You won't think anything of it. Life wasn't much different in 1981. The young people who went to the Stardust that night were planning to do the same thing. They had plans beyond that, for the rest of their lives. What job they wanted. Places they wanted to visit. People they wanted to meet and spend their time with. Spend their life with. They didn't get a chance for all that. It was taken away from them. Those who were left behind had something taken away from them too. The families had a child, a sibling taken away. People were left orphaned but they all had a bit of themselves taken too. That bit was taken in the morgue on Store Street when they were told their loved one had died. It was taken when they ran home to wake their man and dad out of their beds to tell them they just couldn't find their brother or sister or their friend. It was taken by that awful phone call telling them to come home to the north side as fast as they could. It was taken by the Stardust Club on the 14th of February 1981. But for now, it's really just closure they want. They want to find out what happened to their children, their friends, their parents, their loved ones. And uh, we had Caroline in 1963 and she, she grew up, she went to the local school here. I was working all the time and Phyllis was at home uh, with Caroline until she grew up. And then um, she went to Stephen's Green, uh, Letter College on the Green. The McDermott's were three. I know we lost our only child. But, Jeannie, that was dreadful too. Three, three children. Three kids, yeah. It was the house. And the Keegan two sisters. And the Keegan two sisters, yeah. But I just said, like, nobody cares about it, you know. They just A lot of people are still saying to this day, oh, that's years ago, get on with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Move on, move on. Well, it's very hard to move on, you know. You, yeah. you never forget. Never forget her, no. no. God knows now what. You know, she would have been not married. She'd probably be married. I don't know what she would be not. We well, never know we're, anyway. <laughs> we're, we're sort of a bit more hopeful now that we might get something out of this uh, now. But we'd have to wait and see what the end result is. That fellow, Darren Mackin, he's very good. He's a really nice fellow, and I have to say for very him, sincere was, fellow, yeah, yeah, lovely fellow. And I have to say for him, so I hope it, I hope we do get. That's all we want is closure. As I said, we don't need anything else.
yeah. Before we kicked, I was going to say, before we kicked the, the book on ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be nice to have it, you know. Nice to have it, yeah. There's not a lot of people have passed on, yeah. and they oh, never yeah. know what happened to their kids. That's right. So you, you go up to Sutton there, and you see the, the kid's name, and then you see their mummy and daddy's name in the same grave yeah, as them. That's right, yeah. Parents are dead. Parents have passed on. Yeah, you know, I mean, John Keegan has passed on. Yeah, I know Chrissy is still there, but she... And we were married very young. We were married at 22 years of age, weren't yeah, we? Nowadays, I don't get married. No. As I said to Phyllis, we were stupid getting married, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, we were. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very happy. No, thank God, no. No, no very good now, thank God. Yeah. No, everything now. Oh, say if we haven't got a child, that's the... Yeah, and... Uh, that's the sad part of it. The other thing we miss, we've no grandchildren, you know. Yeah. We see other, other see kids. See kids now. How often do you think about it? Oh, every day. Every day it goes by, really goes by think we think about her. Ah, yes. Yeah. She, was very, she was a lovely, she was a very good child. You know, she really was, wasn't she? She was, yeah. Through every round of the fight, the Stardust families have kept their loved ones at the centre. They think about them every single day. And throughout the making of this podcast, we thought about those that didn't come home. I'm Sean Murray, and this was Stardust. Michael Barrett, Richard Bennett, Carol Bissett, James Buckley, Paula Bourne, Caroline Carey, John Colgan, Jacqueline Croker, Liam Dunn, Michael Farrell, David Flood, Thelma Fraser, Michael French, Josephine Glenn, Michael Griffiths, Robert Hillick, Brian Hobbs, Eugene Hogan, Morta Kavanagh, Martina Keegan, Mary Keegan, Robert Kelly, Mary Kennedy, Mary Kenny, Margaret Kiernan, Sandra Lawless, Francis Lawler, Maureen Lawler, Paula Lewis, Eamon Lockman, George McDermott, Marcella McDermott, William McDermott, Julie McDonnell, Theresa McDonnell, Gerald McGrath, Caroline McHugh, Donna Mann, Helena Mangan, James Miller, Susan Morgan, David Morton, Kathleen Muldoon, George O'Connor, Brendan O'Mara, John Stout, Margaret Thornton, Paul Wade. A plaque at Bowmount Hospital commemorating those who died reads, They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We want to wish a massive thank you to everyone who spoke to us for this podcast. Your bravery, persistence, and above all, just how decent you are really shone true at all times. I also want to thank producer Nicky Ryan for the incredibly long hours he spent with and without me making this podcast, and our executive producer Christine Bohan, who has been the guiding hand keeping us on track through it all.
Also, a special thank you to Kathleen McNamee for her invaluable work at the very start of this project, and to Sinead O'Carroll, Susan Daly, and all their colleagues who helped us get this project over the line. This story isn't over, and stay subscribed to this podcast as we'll be back next year on thejournal.ie with updates on the progress of the inquests and on Twitter at StardustPod. In the meantime, we'll be sharing lots more material on that Twitter page and keep an eye out on thejournal.ie for articles by Nikki and myself covering other aspects of Stardust. If you want to read more about the Stardust, the book we mentioned by Featherstone and McCullough is well worth a read. The various tribunal reports we mentioned, the Keane Report in 82, the Compensation Tribunal, Coffee, McCartan, they're all publicly available and we'll share direct links to those. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next year.